You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis and current ass. affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am oh, to yeah. 8.30am. Only double. Grab your ass. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. It's 7am and today is Tuesday the 6th of December. Um, sorry, I just got really shocked <laughs> by the day. Uh, my name is Fung and in the studio today we've got Carnegie and Ivka. Good morning, everyone. Morning. Morning. How are we feeling about the start of December? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a lot. The, the unending passage of time, <laughs> you know. <laughs> How, yeah, are things, hopefully things are wrapping up or it's the opposite. Maybe everyone's getting busier. I think it's busier. the opposite. Yeah. Yeah, yeah mm. it's quite chaotic, isn't it? Did we have a good weekend? It was stinking hot. Yeah, I mean, I live for it. I thrive in the the hotter the better. So I was I was loving it. It was great. Went to the beach like every other person on earth. I was saying when we were in Queensland um, for a little while earlier last month, like <laughs> my partner was like, the beaches here are so calm. Like I'm like yeah because people are used to good weather and people don't like lose their actual minds at the first glimpse of the first ray of sun whereas we went to the beach and it was like obviously we were included in this every person and their dog and cat and every possible living entity was there it was so so chaotic I loved it yeah yeah I live in um, St Kilda and so summertime people just flock flock to the beach yeah and yeah it's great although yeah, that beach particularly. Thank you, that side. Yeah. Yeah. It's very popular. Um, Ivka, did you have a nice weekend? Yes, I did. I went to a gig at the Sydney My Music Bowl, which oh, I feel nice. like was beautiful weather, yeah. great music. It was nice. It Who was like it? Crangbin. <gasps> Everyone was at Crangbin. <laughs> Everyone <laughs> was, was at Crangbin. I deeply Crangbin. regret yes. it. Was Kamati Washington there as well? It was the support. Oh. Yeah. What? <laughs> wow. What an incredible lineup. Yes, it was very like Melbourne is back yeah. sort of event and lineup, and it was really really nice. Yeah, I feel like um, having a a gig at the Sydney My Music Bowl is is like the definitive sign that the city is the city's back. back yeah. Summer is here. We're yeah. ready. Well, kind of. Now we've gone back a little bit, <laughs> yes. but here, as always, <laughs> here little asterisks read the fine print. Okay, so coming up on today's show, first up, we'll be listening to a discussion that I had with Marawa Johnson, who is a Weirdy Woman uh, First Nations Program Lead and Co-Director of Youth Verdict. You may have um, come across Youth Verdict. It was announced last week that they won their case against um, the Clive Palmer-owned Galilee Basin Coal Project. So we caught up yesterday to talk about this case and the importance of First Nations-led climate justice. 
we will then be speaking with Nawe Jimenez, who is a Mexican-Australian socialist and community activist. Um, she spent a lot of her time campaigning against racism, climate change, housing crisis, and many of the other big challenges we face in society. Um, and we'll be on the show this morning to talk through the importance of race and class and other intersections in the elections. And uh, coming up at the towards the end of the show, we'll be playing an interview that I had with Mila and Itonk, two members of Needle and Bitch Collective. Um, regular listeners of Breakfast may recall that a few weeks ago, both Tuesday, Thursday Breakfast um, spoke with Emma and Annalise from IRL to talk about a fundraising gig for Needle and Bitch, a feminist collective based in Indonesia. So I caught up with two of their members and we talked about the history of the collective, the workshops they run and the issues that they face in their communities. Uh, we'll be back with the news headlines right after this message. Three CR Community Radio, eight five five AM. Welcome back to Three CR Tuesday Breakfast. We've got. A whole lot of news headlines for this morning, starting with um, Bruce Lerman's charges being dropped last week. Um, a second trial was going to proceed but will not be proceeding at this stage. This comes after the entire jury was discharged after outside material not heard by the court was found in the jury room, meaning the trial would need to restart. The ACT Director of Public Prosecutions said that he had received compelling evidence to suggest that the ongoing trauma associated with the ongoing prosecution presented a significant risk to the complainant, Brittany Higgins. Um, Brittany Higgins has released a statement on social media um, saying that just expressing how she has felt, um, that she's felt quite on trial, which is the term the media has been using all through um, and, you know, just uh, commenting on the lack of justice um, in her situation. Just a warning that the following story contains the name of an Aboriginal person who has died. So Noongar woman Diane Miller and her unborn child died last week after being hit by a concrete block in South Perth. Diane Miller had been in a critical condition in intensive care at Royal Perth Hospital after suffering a heart attack when the block was allegedly thrown through the open window of her car at the Waterford Shopping Centre in Karawara on Tuesday night. The 30-year-old Noongar woman was five months pregnant and also had an eight-month-old son. She died overnight after her life support was turned off. If anyone listening would like to support Diane's family, there is a GoFundMe page that we will link to that was set up by mm -hmm. Diane's partner's auntie. In other news, uh, Deanna Violet Coco, who blocked a lane of traffic on Sydney Harbour Bridge, has been sentenced to 15 months in prison with a non-parole period of eight months. Um, Magistrate Alison Hawkins in Sydney's Downing Centre local court on Friday sentenced Violet to prison for her role in the climate protest on 13th of April this year. Her protest blocked one of the bridge's five city-bound lanes during the morning peak for about 25 minutes before police removed her and others. She was refused bail on Friday and will remain in custody under her uh, uh, until her appeal hearing in March. 
Earlier this year, the New South Wales government introduced tough new laws increasing punishments for non-violent protesters with larger fines and up to two years in jail. Um, The move followed a series of climate protests that um, were said to have disrupted activity at key resource export ports. And we know that um, even in our own state in Victoria, the state government has also passed similarly harsh laws regarding non-violent protests. In other climate news, Santos has lost its bid to restart drilling at a multi-million dollar gas project off the Tiwi Islands. The full federal court on Friday dismissed the company's appeal, upholding an earlier decision (coughs) that the offshore gas regulator should not have approved drilling in the Barossa gas field. Tiwi Islands elder Dennis Tipper Kalipa in June launched legal action against Santos, claiming he was not consulted over the company's environmental plan for the Barossa gas field. Um, and the federal court judge Mordecai Bromberg in September ruled in his favour. Um, during a hearing last month, Santos argued that the that Justice Bromberg did not properly consider what constituted a relevant person. And they argued that while Tiwi Island's traditional owners had a connection to sea country, that was genuine and real. It do- did not constitute the type of legal interest detailed in the legislation. But Claire Harris KC, representing um, uh, the Tiwi Islanders, argued that the definition was too limited and ignored a person's social, cultural and spiritual interest um, in the environment. Um, and we'll be discussing that more in our interview with Mara uh, later this morning. Unions New South Wales has recently done a survey of 7,000 foreign language job ads, which has found that more than half offer illegal rates of pay. Um, This is across more than 10 industries, and they've found that 60% are offering below the legal pay rate. The ads are most commonly in Chinese, followed by Japanese, Vietnamese, Spanish and Portuguese. The worst industry was retail, with more than 84% of foreign, foreign language ads surveyed offering below the award, followed by cleaning, transport, building and construction, hospitality and hair and beauty. Unions New South Wales said underpayment of migrant workers has become a business model in Australia and the Fair Work Ombudsman was not well resourced enough to handle it. Unions New South Wales Secretary Mark Morey has said that many migrant workers are too scared to complain for fear of being deported because they've worked more hours than their visa allows. He has called for a firewall on the Fair Work Ombudsman website where workers can complain and their stories will not be directly passed on to the Home Affairs Department. The federal government's new industrial relations bill, which was passed last week, does not Um, reflect that change necessarily but it does ban job ads offering below the minimum award. An update from Iran. Iran An Iranian prosecutor has said that the morality police that have been active in Iran have been shut down. Um, He's a public prosecutor um, and he said that the morality police whose detention of Masa Amini has triggered, which has triggered months of protests in Iran, will no longer be active. The Interior Ministry, who is in charge of the morality police, has not confirmed this, and top Iranian officials have repeatedly said that Tehran will not change the mandatory hijab policies that require women to dress modestly. Protesters have called a three-day economic strike and rallied to Tehran's Azadi Square this Wednesday to keep challenging the current rulers. 
In other news, Farha, a Netflix film depicting Zionist forces murdering a Palestinian family during the 1948 Nakba um, surrounding Israel's creation, has been condemned by Israeli officials as creating a false narrative. The film is the debut of the Jordanian filmmaker Darren Salam and has been shown at several film festivals around the world since its release last year and is also Jordan's Oscars entry for 2023. Um, it was released on Netflix last week. The film centres on the experiences of a girl, 14, who is locked in a storage room by her father during the events of the Nakba, um, the term for the ethnic cleansing and displacement for about 700,000 Palestinians. When Israeli soldiers come to the village, Farha witnesses the killing of an entire family through a crack in the pantry door. Um, if anyone is interested in watching it, it's currently available for streaming on Netflix. And finally, some local news. Um, workers at Pastry and Pie Maker Pampas, which is owned by billion-dollar company Goodman Fielder, are on strike because their employer refuses to provide secure jobs to casuals who have been employed as labour hire for almost two decades now on lower wages and worse conditions. They predominantly um, employ migrant workers who are asking for secure jobs and a fair wage increase, um, and there is a a petition going around to the CEO of Goodman Fielder to step in and stop managing uh, management from treating these workers with disrespect. We will link to that in our show notes later today if you were interested in signing it. And the strike is ongoing at the moment in West Footscray. Those have been the news headlines for today. We'll be back with a song right after this. 3CR programs provide information and analysis you won't hear in the mainstream. Today we'll be looking at the legacy of the US war on Vietnam on Laos. And as far as corporate capitalism is concerned, it is the worst political and economic system that you can have. Our laws about jailing refugees and asylum seekers are so well crafted. Sex is not irrelevant and we like who we are, but we don't have to be imprisoned by our gender. Become a subscriber today. Call us on 9419 8377 or visit 3cr.org.au. 3CR, the voice of dissent. Make your gift giving meaningful this year with a festive gift from Children's Ground. A First Nations-led organisation, Children's Ground creates holistic, long-term change with First Nations children, their family and community. Choose from gifts designed by Children's Ground artists or our change-making digital gift cards. You'll receive a digital card to email or to print at home. It's the gift that's guaranteed to arrive on time. Go to childrensground.org.au to shop or learn more. Children's Ground is a 3CR supporter. This is 3CR Community Radio. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast. We're going to play you a track now. This is My Island Home by Spinifex Gum. Bye. 
That was the song My Island Home by Spinifex Gum. In a historic ruling last Friday, a Queensland court said that the massive Clive Palmer owned Galilee Basin coal project should not go ahead because of its contribution to climate change, its environmental impacts and because it would erode human rights. The case was mounted in 2020 by a First Nations-led group of young people aged 13 to 30 called Youth Verdict. It was the first time human rights arguments were used in a climate change case in Australia. Yesterday, I caught up with Marawa Johnson, Weirdy Woman, First Nations Program Lead and Co-Director of Youth Verdict, to talk about this incredible win. Welcome to 3CR Marawa. Firstly, can you tell us about Youth Verdict and how you got involved in this organisation? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me on the program. Really excited to be here. I love to talk about a win against Clive Palmer any day of the week. So Youth Verdict were essentially a Queensland-based group of young people who care about um, climate, um, the climate, I guess, taking action on climate change, but um, really centre us, like try to position ourselves uh, more so to uh, align with, I guess, First Nations land justice and sovereignty agendas. Um, and we see ourselves as sort of being, I guess, um, in, uh, I guess, in this intersection of um, climate action, but like pushing for First Nations to be really leading on that and doing that through supporting and investing in or getting, you know, the broader public to support and invest in um, First Nations cultures and protecting those. Um, Being Queensland-based, we have two Indigenous peoples up here, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. So the vastness of First Nations peoples in Queensland is really rich. Um, And then for the last three years, obviously, we've been um, fighting Clive Palmer in court as well. And we see ourselves as very much sort of like, I guess, advocating in a way for young people to take litigation um, and to... I guess, have that be, you know, a legitimate sort of um, pathway that young people can access and making um, a- making access to um, the legal system easier as well as some of the work that we want to do. But yeah, really um, not saying that litigation is everything, but I think very much so coming out of Queensland, understanding that there's a big history of First Nations-led litigation here that is Um, I guess, um, had those ripple effects across the country, you know, with the state of Mabo and Kawada and Yana versus the Commonwealth and Akiba versus the Commonwealth, and of course, the WIC people versus Queensland. Um, So all of these, um, this, I guess, history of black litigation, and we really want to pay homage to that. And I guess um, support other young people and young First Nations people who want to go down the litigation pathway of, I guess, um, standing up and resisting uh, against the fossil fuel industry in Queensland. So um, I'm sure everyone has read a bit about the case against Waratah coal mine, but can you tell us more about the project and the disastrous environmental impacts that it would have on country? Yeah, thank you very much. So the Galilee Basin has first, um, you know, there's been over seven years, eight years, uh, traditional owner resistance by the Wangana Jagalingu people um, to the opening up of the Galilee Basin against um, Adani, now Bravas's Car- Carmichael Mine. 
Um, but also Waratah has been on the cards for a long time in terms of, um, yeah, opening up the Galilee, which is one of the largest, um, up until Adani, one of the largest untapped coal reserves in the world. Um, where Waratah is proposed to be, which is about 30 kilometres outside of Alpha in central Queensland, um, on the Jagalingu side of Wangana Jagalingu country. Um, yeah, so um, where, pardon me, where Waratah is proposed to be, I guess, um, if Waratah were to go ahead, it would, I guess, um, create the infrastructure and the ability for a lot of other coal mines in the bottom left end of the Galilee Basin to open up. So again, with Adani opening up the top end of the Galilee Basin, we're really concerned about the bottom end opening up, but also there are like 30 new coal projects proposed at the moment throughout the Galilee and the Bowen Basins more to the east, um, towards like Rockhampton, Mackay. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that's just a little bit about the, the mine itself proposed many years ago by Club Palmer. We've been um, objecting as youth verdict for three years now since 2020, um, but really shifted in 20, uh, pardon me, shifted at the end of 2020 to have the cultural rights focus of the cultural rights of First Nations people at the forefront of youth verdict's case. So um, a little bit more about the case, like the details, I guess. We're represented by the Environmental Defenders Office in Queensland. We're co-objectors with the Bimba Box Alliance. So the Bimba Box Nature Reserve is actually um, out uh, where the mine site is proposed in central Queensland on Wangana Jagalingu country. Um, and so we're co-objectors with Bimba Box, uh, the Bimba Box Alliance, also known as, uh, referred to as TBA. And um, <clears throat> the focus for Bimba Box really is about the direct impacts that the mine would have um, on country, but um, definitely to the nature reserve as well. And then Youth Verdict's approach has always been more the focus on the indirect impacts, so the climate impacts of building a new coal mine. Um, and essentially through the climate impacts and um, I guess our theory of change at YV being about supporting First Nations land justice, um, to have First Nations people lead action on climate change. We really shifted at the end of 2020 to have the focus on cultural rights um, and since then really make, um, I guess, the youth verdict side of the case about um, climate impacts to human rights and cultural rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, and I guess, the original sort of theme was really about, um, uh, I guess, the case where it, it fit into a lot of, um, I guess, the trend at the moment with a lot of youth cases, you know, going up against um, billionaires or governments and suing them or, you know, taking legal action and litigation around climate, uh, climate change or climate inaction by those um, governments or whoever it be. Uh, and that was, I think, the original intention of YV as well, very much so, like youth is still in our name. But I think we've come a long way, especially in the last two years with the shift to focus on, um, you know, the worst affected by climate change and really giving the platform to the experience of climate and the negative impacts of climate change that are already happening 
in First Nations communities and put understanding that as young people, if we really want to change this country and create the shift necessary, you know, to save First Nations communities in Queensland and in the top of Australia, but um, also, you know, to ensure a safe future and climate for us all, then we really need to be, irregardless of age, supporting First Nations people who are doing, uh, I guess, their part in the legacy of caring for country. Can you talk more about the the case and, and the kind of evidence that was provided um, to the court, as well as some of the witnesses who were able to, to talk about the impacts of this mine? Yeah, great. Thank you. So a little bit about um, the evidence provided to the court and the witnesses. So um, we have... Um, I guess the shift for YB in terms of like if we're going to do climate justice and not just climate action, then we need to be giving First Nations people with experience of climate change that platform. So we made a decision um, around September 2020 to really um, to have exclusively First Nations witnesses um, and um, really to to switch, I guess, from, you know, I we had multiple rights that we were arguing for um, and, I guess, challenging Clive Palmer's mining lease and environmental um, authority applications on, on multiple grounds. Um, but really for us, like, um, it became clear that if we put cultural rights at the top and, um, you know, have had First Nations witnesses, then... First Nations witnesses through their cultural rights are able to argue every single one of the other human rights that we are also arguing for. Um, And good ways, that's the way that it should be as well, because it's not like certain human rights apply to like the non-Indigenous population and then only the cultural rights apply to First Nations people. Um, What we said was, okay, we need to put cultural rights on the top and have First Nations witnesses because every aspect of their lives um, they live through culture and um, the way their lives are going, they are already being interrupted by climate change, I think shows um, the interruption to culture and also gives evidence to, you know, the right to life and all of the other rights that right, rights of a child. So to be able to inherit their culture as well um, can be argued all through our First Nations witnesses. So we made that shift. Um, all of our witnesses are at the moment from uh, are from far north Queensland. So we've got a young man from Yirinji um, Nation around Gimoy Cairns, and then also an uncle from um, Hopevale, Bog and Water Man. And then we've also got um, a family from the Torres Strait. So father and daughter from Arab Dunley Island, and then Mama um, Aka Florence from. Paruma Coconut Island, which is also, it's one of the low-lying central, um, one of the low-lying central islands. It's also a low-lying atoll. Um, and um, Aka Florence's sister was also one of the Torres Strait eight members in the UN uh, Human Rights uh, Committee complaint. So um, really excited to have Aka Florence as a witness as well. And we really wanted to get that, um, you know, sort of, broad representation of mainland um, and also Zenith Kess, the islands in the Torres Strait. And also, um, yeah, 
uh, I guess, just give uh, a variety um, of evidence where we could show that, um, you know, it's climate change is happening far and wide across these different Aboriginal nations and different communities, different islands, they're all being affected. So, yeah, so we had evidence of rising sea levels, also evidence of heat waves causing um, the die-offs of um, flying foxes and native animals. Um, and then also, yeah, just the um, the seasonal change, you know, whether it, it's drought. So for the Gutchins, um, they're, um, they practice their traditional gardening um, on the islands. And if they're unable to, you know, practice traditional gardening because of drought and, you know, the rain's not coming when it's supposed to come, um, then, you know, for a lot of, um, and this is, I guess, the sentiment coming um, now that, you know, climate change is really being talked about in the Torres Strait as well, is that if they're unable to practice their traditional gardening practices and, you know, um, have agency and autonomy over their own sort of food and diets, then, um, you know, they're going to have to become more reliant on the shops that are on their islands and, you know, uh, the cost of living is just absolutely outrageous. Some places like a tin of like baby milk can be $80, you know, like a small pack of meat could be $120. And so um, this is just, I guess, forcing First Nations people into poverty even more and like re uh, doubling down on that because, um you know, and th these are the <laughs> impacts of climate change. This is the reality in communities that um, people aren't able to even, whether it's traditional hunting or fishing and, you know, just food sources that um, they have relied on. Um, and they can see now they're either not as big as they usually are, they're not coming at the right time. They just can't be dependent upon anymore. Um, and it's causing, you know, First Nations peoples to have to look outside of the um yeah to rely exclusively on i guess external food sources and yeah just in terms of remoteness and the vastness of queensland like really um it's just unacceptable and it's just um a, a total you know injustice for first nations people i guess to be um pushed out of um yeah being able to live on their own land essentially thinking about having to relocate not just because of you know the rising sea levels but also because of um the cost of living yeah and i think when we are talking about how these issues are caused by by climate change it's so easy to forget that there's people or powers responsible for that climate change so you know we're talking about the governments it's really just like another form or ongoing form of colonization. Um, you know, the the refusal to uh the refusal to shut down gas and coal, the refusal to listen to First Nations communities, um, allow for these problems to spread and to um intensify. So yeah, I think that's really interesting to note that it's not just about, you know, the environmental impacts, like you said, but leads to all these other issues for for First Nations communities. I guess that's kind of, um, you know, how I talk to mob about climate change is it's it's about like the future of our cultures and our people. 
are we going to be able to identify with our old people and with our places anymore? Because obvious, the obvious, you know, um, impacts of climate change with the landscape changing or, you know, unfortunately in the case of the islands in the Torres Strait and throughout the South Pacific, like rising sea levels and some of the islands just may not be there, you know, in a, you know, in a few decades or won't be livable anymore. Um, but also, yeah, inaction on climate change is really, it's a colonial process. It's co- co- colonization and, you know, the, I guess, all of the other, um, yeah, the isms that created this issue. But then it's also all of those things that are, um, I guess, um, stalling and in the way and the major blockers of any action being able to be taken. And in the meantime, you know, we have people who are deemed sacrifice and um, like zones and sacrifice people and collateral and they can just be thrown away. And this is a colonial approach. It's how the colonizers first thought about First Nations people when they arrived here with the declaration of terra nullius, the land belonged to nobody. Um, And we've had human rights abuses on this continent since 1788. Um, It's not a new thing. Um, but definitely, I think with climate change, um, the reality of what First Nations people have been living through for 234 years is going to, you know, might become a lot more evident. And so just really imploring everybody to um, think seriously about our future and take some action on climate change. Yeah. My next question then is related to that. For listeners out there, who would like to support Youth Verdict, um, what are some things that we can do? Yeah, great. Thank you for the question. So definitely um, on Facebook, um, search for Youth Verdict, Y-O-U-T-H, Verdict, V-E-R-D-I-C-T. And like our Facebook, follow us on there. We're, um, We're very quiet on the socials for a while as we're just, you know, trying to run the case. But now that we've won... Um, and we really want to get the message out of what we're pushing for in our court case. Um, yeah, go to our website, youthverdict.org.au. You could um, sign up there to support us, but also um, you could send us an email at team, T-E-A-M, at youthverdict.org.au as well. Um, let us know if you're um, a young person based in Queensland who wants to be Um, wants to get involved a little bit more. Um, And then we've also got our Instagram as well, Youth Verdict. So hit us up and coming soon to TikTok, but that's another issue. My last question for you, Moa, is um, where next um, with this case? What's the next step for Youth Verdict? Yeah, thank you. So um, I think Waratah have until the 22nd of December to file an appeal um, and then we'll find out from there. Um, We're guessing that they will appeal because they've been really quiet in the media. Um, So we'll see what happens. Um, But also ongoing work is, you know, really supporting the communities that our witnesses come from to have conversations about, you know, maintaining culture um, on to the future and sort of like how we want um to inform our climate action in a in a in a way that really um celebrates the richness of first nations cultures and really 
um, you know, we're hoping that people will want to, um, yeah, our own people, but also the broader mainstream community, I guess, invest in the protection of First Nations cultures. And by doing that and investing in, um, you know, First Nations land rights and land justice um, work, then, um, you know, we like, yeah, traditional owners can stand up against these big projects more. And um, hopefully, you know, we can really um, interrupt and hopefully start to form some sort of um, powerful <laughs> attacks on the coal and mining, uh, uh, coal industry in Queensland and um, the mining industry throughout the throughout Australia. Thank you so much for joining us today, Murawa, to talk about um, the youth verdict uh, win against Waratah Coal Mine and for talking to us about the importance of culture and the human rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders when we're, when we're talking specifically about um, climate change and its impacts. We'd love to speak to you again maybe in the new year to talk about any updates regarding the case. But for now, thanks so much for joining us on 3CR. Thank you so much for having me. Have a good day. That was Marawa Johnson, Weirdy Woman, First Nations Program Lead and Co-Director of Youth Verdict. To learn more about the historic win against Waratah Coal, please visit their website at youthverdict.org.au. We're going to play you a song now. This is by uh, Karajala Kiridara and it's their song Ngura or Rain Song.
100 meters, 75 meters, 50 meters, 25 meters, 15 meters, 10 meters, 5 meters. Grass fires move faster than you think. How well do you know fire? Plan, act, survive. Go to vic.gov.au slash nofire. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Three CR Community Radio, eight five five AM. Welcome back to Three CR Tuesday Breakfast. Nawi is a Mexican-Australian socialist and community activist who believes that racism, indigenous oppression, climate change, the housing crisis, and many other big challenges we face as a society today are grounded in the destructive and competitive nature of capitalism. She's been on, uh, involved in the campaign against racism and fascism, organized campaigns against far-right, neo-Nazi, and Islamophobic groups, worked with young leaders of the Sudanese community to counter racist hysteria and so much more. Now he's on the show this morning to talk about the recent elections and the role of race and class when it comes to electing new parties. Welcome to the show, Nawi. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you this morning? Yeah, really good. I'm excited to be here. And we're very excited to have you. Um, can you start by maybe telling us a little bit about your previous work, especially with um, the campaign against racism and fascism? What sort of led you to join this campaign? Yeah, so I joined CARS in 2015, and it started as a uh, campaign organizing group um, in opposition to the Reclaim Australia movement that was forming um, in Melbourne. Um, and Reclaim Australia formed, I guess, uh, through a lot of Islamophobic ideas around um, Muslim immigration. And one of the things that made me join CARF was really um, seeing the direct connection that um, the far right, this movement, was having uh, with mainstream politics. Um, so, you know, you had Pauline Hansen in Parliament, you know, kind of like come in with um, the burqa and, uh, you know, you also had her table emotions of like it's okay to be white um and i think that that you know islamophobia and that racism really fed um the far right in in melbourne um and really worryingly in my opinion was the fact that a lot of um you know kind of uh mom and dad racists were kind of like joining um reclaim australia and were joining that islamophobic movement so carp was formed with the um direct uh, idea of trying to sever the links between this kind of more soft and core racist from these, you know, far-right neo-Nazis like Neil Erickson, who, you know, thought that Hitler should be taught in schools and, you know, a picture of him should be hung in schools as well. So we thought it was really important to try and disorganize that movement. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that you use the phrase mom and dad um, racist because I think that's, <laughs> that um, really describes that demographic really well. Um, you know, as a young person of colour, what has your experience been with race in politics? Um, well, there's definitely not enough people of colour in politics. Um, I think a lot of the times uh, the way we, I guess, encounter um, different political issues, it's very easy to try and remove 
um, the very complex nature, I think, of, of Australia, how it's been built. And I think that that is often carried into politics, you know, the fact that, um, you know, like the whole structure of parliament is pretty um, non-representative, I guess, of, of the broader community um, is is really true. And I think for, well, I mean, I guess in, in Brunswick, you know, you had forums where um, the only people on stage at the start, like there was a public transport forum that was organized um, by by group in, in Brunswick and they only allowed to have, um, yeah, candidates from parties that were already represented. So they only had reason, labor and um, and Greens, and it was, you know, an all-male, all-white panel in that moment, um, which was pretty unfortunate. Um, so, yeah, you know, you continue to see, I think, at times, um, that form of inequality. Yeah, definitely. And I noticed as well in the state election um, that a lot of the people campaigning for right-wing parties, especially in Footscray, where I voted, um, were people of colour. So there was this mm. sort of um, disproportionate representation because, as you're saying, you know, a lot of uh, politicians and panels and, you know, what we see generally in politics, it's white men or, at the most, white mm. women. So I was interested in how, um, you know, the people of colour were being represented in in this way um, mm. and, you know, possibly being... They were meant to appeal to... The African and Vietnamese and Indian and other people of colors um, communities in Footscray and the West, you know, have you seen a rise in people of color becoming involved with the right and com- campaigning in suburbs like Footscray? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's a pretty interesting um, phenomenon I think happening at the moment. And like you know, for example, the Liberal Party for a very long time has been trying to get into the Sikh community. The Vietnamese community, for example, in Brunswick, you know, one of the candidates for the Liberal Party was um, part of the Vietnamese community. Um, and, yeah, like, I think, you know, one of one of the real things is that, you know, um, I think that the Liberal Party and also kind of, like, far-right parties like the UAP, I guess, do have a bit more of an edge um, at the moment because their whole kind of, like, political framework is broader, right? So they say freedom, 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 which is about, you know, kind of, like, having... A lot of um, yeah, kind of like libertarian positions. Um, you know, a real hatred for Daniel Andrews for um, the lockdowns, and they try and build that kind of support um, in opposition to the lockdown. So they've gone into you know small businesses of um, you know kind of like uh, any kind of community um, and say, well, you're a small business, you were hurt by the lockdowns, um, you should you know support this party because we're against, um, you know, the lockdowns, um, and they really hurt small businesses. The government doesn't care about you. Um, so all of a sudden you have, you know, people of colour, you know, having posters of the UAP in their businesses without really realising the broader framework that these um, parties have, you know. Um, so I think it's, yeah, it's definitely something that's happening more and more. Yeah, absolutely, and it's a little bit um, disheartening to see, uh, you know, what do you think that is it we can do as a broader community to kind of counter this sort of misinformation that, um, you know, communities that are generally quite vulnerable are being kind of, you know, peddled and so are therefore getting involved and even campaigning for um, these parties? Mm. Well, I think the, the starting point is to, you know, kind of point out to the real reason why, you know, inequalities exist. And I think that we have to have a systemic 
understanding of that. And I think, you know, there's lots of really um, impressive, like, um, community groups, actually, that have um, already started kind of, like, writing their own leaflets about what the um, UAP was about, you know, um, in all of these different um, languages. So there was a really awesome, um, yeah, like, community campaign. I think it was in um, Thomastown um, around that. So I think there's small groups that can um, be built from the community to kind of, like, you know, letterbox about that. Um, but I think the broader kind of, like, um, I guess the, the broader um, thing that we need to do realistically is is start to combat these politics um, in, in you know, the mainstream. So it's about, you know, any time that the far right organizes, it's about also, you know, taking a stand against those politics, whether it's through, um, you know, protests, whether it's through, um, you know, kind of like community um, organizing groups, but it's really about saying, if we really want to get rid of these ideas, there needs to be a political alternative that is created that actually says, um, you know, like uh, the truth about why inequality exists, which is, you know, the fact that the entire system is geared towards, you know, creating more wealth for the rich and the vast majority of us, you know, um, have to create this wealth and we don't get to access it and we don't get to decide what we do with it. And then, you know, racism is used to divide us in order to not be organized enough to get, you know, actually control over over the resources that we create as a society. So I think, you know, there's one angle, which is tackling it through the community and, you know, having a lot of information campaigns. But then the other angle is, you know, the real big fight that I think we have on our hands, which is about actually challenging the system. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, that's a great point about how the divisions in society really keep the wealth where it is um, and keep things as they are you know it stops um, grassroots change because it stops people from you know coming together um, I know this is sort of a big topic but another thing that I was interested in especially in the recent state elections is the intersections of both race and class um, and how that plays out um, I feel like class is not a very talked about thing in Australia but it's informing a lot of what we're doing and how we're voting. Um, can you just give us your thoughts on how you think those intersections play out in politics today? Mm. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We had a huge example with, um, you know, the um, Flemington, uh, I guess, floods that happened recently where you have, you know, a wall built, you know, a little less of a, what, 10 years ago um, to stop this, you know, um, you know billion-dollar industry from being flooded so that the races can happen and you know 10 years later you have um you know incredible rain that uh, happens because of climate change that then it floods um working class families homes so i think that there's definitely um a lot of um divisions being shown with that but i think broadly speaking um i think yeah you know we're, we're living through uh the beginnings of a quite um serious economic global economic crisis that is going to be um, very much felt um, by working class people. And I think that it's important to remind ourselves that actually working class people are not uh, your caricature of like um, a white male construction worker wearing a hard hat, wearing floral. Actually, the working class is incredibly diverse. You know, it's, uh, you know, people from all different industries who are, uh, you know, black, white, Asian, indigenous, like you name it. The working class is so diverse, you know, um, and we're the ones who are paying for this crisis. You know, we continue to go through 
government after government that gives tax concessions to um, the rich instead of funding um, services like healthcare. Um, I think particularly in the West, you know, um, the main campaign, at least for Victorian socialists, was around services. You know, the fact that Werribee, for example, can take, um, you know, 50% of pregnant women to deliver babies. Like, that's an outrage, you know. Everyone knows that you can't go to Werribee Hospital if you live there because it's too busy. So, you know, there's a battle around hospitals. There's a battle about transport. Um, and, yeah, you know, I think these are class issues that um, aren't being addressed um, by by the governments because it's easier to kind of, you know, do, I don't know, level crossing removals in Brunswick, you know. Um, so there's a real lack of focus, I think, in working class areas um, in, in Melbourne. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like there's not even enough sort of conversation around acknowledging um, the class issues. I feel like um, there's a bit of a taboo around class more than race. Um, And so the intersections, which are really important, get a little bit ignored. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think it's also about saying, you know, like one of the ways of also like challenging um, racism is also through, um, you know, like acknowledging class and also the way of organizing, I think ordinary people is also about, you know, trying to uh, combat, you know, racist ideas in society. Um, so I think um, neither one, I think, is is more or less important than the other. Um, but it's also about acknowledging the connection, I think, that racism plays in our society to, um, yeah, to exploit or ordinary people. Um, and class also being, you know, a central um well, a central category, I think, one one which dictates so much about your life. Yeah, definitely. Um, how are you hoping to make a change in these areas, you know, in your with your work with the socialists and, you know, hopefully by the next election we'll see something different? Mm. Well, I mean, I think one of the things that Victorian Socialists is trying to do is change the way that people perceive how politics happen. So I think a lot of people feel like, you know, every four years you get to vote for someone and then they enact change. Where What we're trying to do is say, actually, um, even if we did get one person elected, two people elected, um, that's not going to be enough to transform uh, the political current um, that is, you know, happening today. We need people to be organized in their workplaces, organized, um, you know, um, protesting, organizing political campaigns to demand climate justice, you know, organizing campaigns uh, to combat racism, organizing campaigns for abortion rights, you know, to demand safe legal abortion on demand. We need to be building these movements outside of parliament to actually force politicians to to really, you know, rule in the interest of, of ordinary people. And I think um, that's what we're going to be doing. You know, I think, yeah, like you were talking about, the far right is definitely on on the up at the moment. And we're seeing victories of the far right all around Europe. And I think that Australia is also no, no different when it comes to, you know, kind of, you know, our, you know, uh, discussing refugee um, policies and, you know, kind of like border regimes that we have. So, yeah, there's going to be lots of campaigns that we're going to be organizing for refugee rights, um, for climate justice. Um, to create stronger movements to, yeah, really kind of push for that change because we we think that actually has to happen from below and it can't happen from above. Yeah, and um, I hope that, you know, um, communities that this will affect are able to see that it is in their interest and, you know, Mm. for us to be working together is definitely in everybody's interest um, rather than, you know, 
the small business kind of rhetoric um, that would be really great to see at a, at a kind of community grassroots level. Um, if people want to know more about you and support your work, where can they find you and follow you? Yeah, um, so we have um, our webpage, which is victoriansocialist.org.au. Um, we're also on Instagram, which I believe is Big Sock. Um, and also I have a yeah Instagram page, which is now for Brunswick. Um, and we're going to be yeah, posting a lot about um, upcoming actions. Um, at the moment, uh, there's uh, discussions about uh, organizing more uh, climate uh, rallies, and in particular, um, there's a pretty concerning, um, you know, uh, effort happening to criminalize a lot of um, climate, um, you know, protesters. We've seen in New South Wales that uh, Violet Coco, who's, you know, an uh, Extinction Rebellion activist, she's she's been recently sentenced um, to, I think it was like at least um, eight months uh, without parole. Uh, for for blocking an intersection in Sydney, and you know, in Victoria, also recently there was anti-protesting laws that um, went through about criminalizing uh, protesters that were protesting um, in native logging uh, sites um, and forests in Victoria. So there's a real, you know, kind of like uh, yeah, push by you know governments um, in in Australia to to oppose the yeah, protesters who are you know very clearly seeing that. The climate destruction is is pretty severe, so I think that there's that is a really important um, issue that that we're going to be organizing around. Absolutely, and you know, here at 3CR, we do follow these issues, and um, it's been very disturbing to see the criminalization and you know just the general response to peaceful protests um and the disregard for climate change as always um yeah. now that's all we have time for this morning unfortunately i would love to keep chatting but hopefully we can have you back on the show at some point um, Absolutely. but thanks so thanks much so for much joining for us me. no thank you for joining us and talking us through this very um big issue um it's been a pleasure no worries thank you so much so that was Naoi Jimenez talking to us about the role of race and class in the recent state elections. We'll be right back after this. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. We are going to revisit um, a conversation that we had with Fleur Taylor, who is the Vice President for Professional Staff at the NTEU-VU branch. Um, Victoria University has been going through another restructure with big changes to the university's colleges, strategic direction, um, and so much more. And staff um, and working conditions are already being affected through staff cuts. Um, excessive workloads and, you know, lots more that is yet to come. Um, Fleur Taylor joined us on the show a couple of weeks ago to talk through um, what's happening at VU and what is to come for staff. Welcome to the show, Fleur. Good morning, Carnegie. So um, how long have you been at VU and what are some of the major changes you've seen in your time there? I've been at VU nearly five years, um, and I think probably the major changes that um, stick out to me since I've been there um, is obviously the impact of the COVID lockdowns, which has, you know, hit higher education hard, but that's only 
been a crisis that's piled upon decades of neoliberal starvation of education funding, you know, for for, for the universities and, and TAFE sector. But two changes that have stuck out to me um, have been sort of witnessing firsthand the impact of more than 100 redundancies that the university carried out at the end of um, 2020. Um, and, you know, I, I guess the impact of that has been to see the crippling workloads that have been piled on people, particularly professional staff, that's like non-teaching staff um, at the universities, where typically the university will say, well, we don't need this function and that function um, and get rid of that person. Sometimes people have been personally targeted, you know, for a reason that's obviously nothing to do with the job role. Um, and then the remaining staff are left to sort of buckle under crippling workloads. Um, I think the other thing that I have witnessed during that time is the, is the impact of an enterprise agreement that we currently have that was negotiated in 2019 that severely penalises um, teaching-focused academics. So it's created sort of two classes of um, academic teaching staff, some who have an entitlement to do research and some who are, um, you know, nominally teaching only. But, of course, the nature of academic work means that they do far more than that. Some of them are supervising PhDs, chairing courses, um, all the while being asked to teach in a, um, a form of teaching that VU has has implemented called block mode where students do um, one subject intensively for four weeks at a time rather than doing four subjects concurrently during a semester as is the case at most universities. Yeah so that you know that already sounds like staff's um, workloads are just being drastically increased with no kind of assistance from the university um, and then just last week, VU's VC has announced that the six colleges will actually be merged into two, um, while also saying that job cuts will be minimal. You know, how do you think this is actually going to impact staff and students? Well, I mean, it's, you know, maybe it's just the sort of first tranche of like a wave of restructures and and, um, and reorganisations um, that the university is going to do. I mean, on the on paper, you know, the the... The actual number of jobs that are supposedly going to be impacted or lost out of this might be small, um, but what in practice they're doing is is um, abolishing a whole range of positions, moving functions around and, and so forth. Um, and when you see the list laid out, you can see that there's a lot of, you know, middle management positions being abolished and, you know, more senior executive positions being created and then a lot of um, you know mid-level professional positions being abolished and replaced with very very junior um, professional positions um, and you know it, it, like like a cynical person might say well you know here's another excuse of, of, of unis, unis to take out sort of years and years of experience and replace it with you know more junior more easily um, pushed around, um, you know, lower-paid staff. Um, in terms of collapsing colleges into two or splitting them out again into 17 or something, it just feels like every university has done this and gone on this train, you know, at some point, like, oh, let's make two giant kind of colleges and all faculties, oh, let's split them all apart, oh, let's put them all back together and stuff sometimes under the same management. Um, so I think, you know... One of the one of the worst parts of it is that, as usual, um, there's a 
mechanism under the enterprise agreement that we have that, that requires the university to meaningfully consult with the union and with staff about these changes. But when you see the change management proposal and when you hear it laid out, it's clear that they've already made their decisions and, you know, any any attempt at sort of actually getting information from staff about what they do and where the pressure points are, you know, it isn't you know, isn't forming part of it. You know, it, it is it is just a, a matter of them kind of, you know, drawing up a drawing up a plan and, and going ahead with it. Yeah, that definitely sounds like, you know, staff are being sort of set up to feel disempowered from the start and almost be blindsided in a way. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, this is the second big change um, after the first massive 2020 change and the impact of COVID. You know, how are staff feeling at the moment? Well, um, I think I, I think I would preface that by kind of saying, like, I haven't worked at universities for a really long time. It's not my lifelong sort of um, career industry. Like, I formerly worked in publishing, which, you know, in Australia and probably everywhere is a really kind of cutthroat industry. So, like, I'm used to management cuts and so forth. But I think what sticks in the throat of staff at universities is the kind of rhetoric that goes along with it. Like in other industries, they'll just tell you, you know, profits are down, you're going, we're cutting this out, we're not doing this line and, and stuff. But at, at at universities, like we have a new management team at VU and it's all progressive inclusivity, protecting country, making VU a thriving place to work and study, start well, finish brilliantly. And they kind of want to sell these changes as part of some grand strategic plan that, you know, cements the EU as a kind of a cultural and moral leader in the west of Melbourne. Um, but when it comes to industrial relations and university restructures, it's it's the same old it's the same old crap as always. Um, and I think, you know, no one disagrees that you know, workplaces change, businesses change, and that restructures of areas occur occur with that. I think what staff at VU are utterly sick of is university management's pretending that their cost-cutting or their deck chair rearrangement is part of some great moral vision for higher education. Um, you know, from what I've seen, it's the same as any other business. It's about cutting costs, making workers do more for less, and giving top jobs to your mates. Yeah, I think that, you know, across the sector, we are seeing the corporatization of universities and this is a great example of exactly that um you know we're seeing uh the melbourne uni closing its animal hospital in werribee and staff at fed uni are striking in response to proposed cuts um how can university staff across the sector you know know their rights and fight back yeah, I think that's such an important question, Carnegie, because, you know, there's no doubt that unionism in Australia, you know, is at a, is in a terrible state. You know, there's, there's low density, um, you know, we're faced by crippling industrial laws that are some of the most stringent in the world. Um, so, you know, the first and most basic obvious thing is to make sure that you are a current member of your union, like join, actually join the union, no matter what you think of its, you know, leadership or its past decisions or something, like you can only sort of change it if you're a part of it. Um, but at, at the moment, it's particularly important because universities are negotiating um, enterprise agreements. There's a whole round of enterprise agreement negotiation. And what that means is that there will be a narrow window of opportunity for protected industrial action. Strikes and pickets such as the scene at the University of Sydney, Federation University, um, like just last week. Um, and we need to grasp that opportunity with both hands because... Our unions can't be rebuilt without struggle, um, you know, and 
joining together to say to management, we are the university, we teach the students, we keep the place running and we deserve not to be made sick and stressed when we go when we go to work, we deserve a good wage. You know, we 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 deserve, you know, to to have the valuable functions that we do at the university properly resourced and and properly and properly carried out. Um, and 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 we deserve to have our tens of years, you know, hundreds of collective years of expertise feed into you know the, the workplace, and to, and and that flows through to the experience of students. I think one of the most irritating and upsetting things about working at a university is constantly hearing about, oh, we're all about the student experience on the one hand, while the other hand is like cutting and strangling and squeezing staff. Like how can students have a good experience or get a good education when staff are are, are cut to the bone? So I think, you know, these experiences hopefully inspire people to join, you know, especially if if you... get involved at a time when there can be a strike or a picket line or something like that that inspires people to join, gives people the confidence to assert themselves collectively, you know, not just in the grand scheme of, like, enterprise agreements, but in the day-to-day nickels of work life, you know, where you're not going to Fair Work Commission, you're not having an industrial officer next to you, but you and your workmates are able to push back enough, you know, with confidence and with organisation to make the day-to-day work life more bearable. And so those are the two sides of unionism that I think are really important and, you know, the only way that we can effectively push back against union management. Absolutely. And, you know, here at 3CR, we are incredibly pro-union. So we encourage all our listeners to definitely join your union, especially if you're in the tertiary sector at the moment. Um, Solidarity across the sector is super important. Um, And, you know, the union is one thing that you can build um, from the ground up. And so really um, want people to check it out, join the union Um, have a say in what's going on. Flood, that's all we have time for this morning, but thank you so much for joining us and talking to us about this very important issue. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So that was an interview that um, we did with Flood Taylor from the NTEU Victoria University branch about um, the situation there and workers' rights. Regular listeners of 3CR Breakfast may recall that a couple of weeks ago, Tuesday and Thursday Breakfast spoke with Emma and Annalise from Incendium Radical Library and Collective about their fundraising gig for Needle and Bitch, an anarcho-feminist collective based in Indonesia. Last week, Fung caught up with Mila and Itonk from the collective. They talked about the history of the collective, the services and support they provide, and the issues that are impacting their communities. Thank you so much for joining us on 3CR, Mila and Ithonk. Uh, Mila, can you tell us about the origins of Needle and Bitch Collective? Okay, so Needle and Bitch began uh, in around 2012. So at first it was uh, an info shop and not an artist collective. Uh, based in Depok, it's in Jakarta suburban. But then uh, we felt a little bit burnt out with Jakarta situation. You know, it's a big city atmosphere with so many people and uh, with the hostile culture that we found a bit uh, toxic. So uh, we, pref- we prefer to move uh, to, to Jakarta. So uh, at first the name 
is not Mirovic, it was uh, Instituta. Instituta means Institute A or A. Uh, A is for anarchist, so yeah. Uh, but then when we moved to, to Jakarta, uh, we want to explore more to the feminism issue because in the anarchist community itself, uh, it's no one talk about uh, feminism, you know? Uh, so it's still male dominated and uh, we rarely heard uh, women or queer or friends uh, really get involved in the community. So Midland Beach took the initiative to form a feminist collective. So yeah, in 2013 or 14, uh, we began to hold workshops and build networks with, uh, with the feminist community and also uh, organizing uh, many events and our solidarity network with uh, with um, like farmers and rural women. So yeah, that's the that's kind of the history of Middle and Beach. You mentioned this before in your answer, Mila, but could you tell us more about what it means to be an anarcha feminist collective? Um so uh from the first, we're committed to organizing a space that is more uh, non-hierarchical hierarchical and uh, more inclusive. Uh, and also the collective itself works based on mutual cooperation and autonomy and dialogue ethics. So uh, in the feminist community in Indonesia, we uh, rarely found uh, about the issue because most of it uh, um, it works with government and also with uh, non-governmental organization more like you know like a funding organization you know with uh, donors and uh, very little uh, people doing the autonomy issues so I mean, anarcho-feminism is not only about uh, feminism, but how to uh, how to promote the uh, more like uh, you know like equal relation between between community and also uh, in the bigger scope of society. So we don't depend on the state structure, but we depend on our community and uh, autonomy of ourselves. Mila, I really like what you were saying about being independent from from the state. Um, I think we've seen similar things here um, in so-called Australia, smaller communities helping each other, establishing mutual aid connections, um, and I guess relying on each other in the community instead of the state, because we know that the, the state and the governments tend to leave a lot of people behind and they discriminate against a lot of communities. So, um, yeah, people can't really rely on the state for any sort of help or support. You mentioned before that Needle and Bitch runs workshops and activities. Can you tell us more about what, what kind of activities you offer? 
Okay. Uh, it's so many, it's so many, it's so many activity, activity. Yeah. Sometimes we are collaborate with so many organizations here. Like uh, how 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 we reclaim reclaim our space, how we reclaim reclaim our right, make make so some zine and then uh, work, uh, workshop and also middle and helpline for uh, women women have uh, unplanned pregnancy uh, and. Yeah, that's so many, so many, uh, so many soft skill workshop. Uh, I get the value when you and uh, make make uh, activity. The, the name is Crafty Queer. Crafty Queer is, is promote about about uh, about uh, the diversity, and then uh, people people will join in in this activity. It it's not just it's not just LGBT, but I think like this is this is how we how 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 we reclaim reclaim our space not not just one identity but but we we are we are together i can add some uh, maybe uh, information about workshops we have in the past so we also uh, have discussion and workshops uh, on education on women issues, gender equality, reproductive health and sexuality, and also local politics like environmental issue and also land and agrarian struggle. So uh, we have uh, there, there were so many <laughs> so many workshops I have to remember. Yeah, like Itong said, we have uh, this unplanned pregnancy helpline. So uh, this project is uh, right. Uh, I don't say right now uh, inactive, but it's uh, we don't really promote the pro project anymore because uh, due to the safety issue. Can you talk more about any particular issues that you're concerned with at the moment as as a collective? Right now, we want to focus more on uh reproductive health and sexuality issue because it's something that uh still happening in our communities like you know like sexual violence and drug raping and yeah those things so uh we want to reach uh more uh women in communities uh talk about it so uh, uh there will so there will be some kind of uh, awareness you know and promote it on social media uh, and also not only that uh, we also uh, focus on unplanned pregnancy issues a few weeks ago there was a fundraising gig here in nam melbourne to raise money for needle and bitch and was such a great example of solidarity across movements and communities internationally. Um, what does solidarity mean or look like to you? And why is it so important? Yeah, why why this is important? Because we cannot we cannot we cannot fight uh, we cannot fight alone. So we need we need each other uh, to 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 fight our our, our rights. 
And Mila, is there anything you wanted to add there about the importance of solidarity across different groups, communities? Because we cannot fight alone on the big issue like capitalism and <clears throat> sexism. I mean, we have to uh, build a union or fellowship uh, from common interests and uh, common feelings like uh, with the, uh, within a group. So we have to build like a mutual support and then a support system on building uh, the autonomy about uh, uh, our life. So yeah, I guess uh, that means uh, that what solidarity means to me. Before we go today, I would like to ask you both, are there ways which in which our listeners can support the collective? Um, where can they go to find out more about Needle and Bitch? Okay, so you can support our collective in many ways, like um, not only financially, but also supporting our issue that we bring and also we want to make sure that uh, any option you have to support us uh, to create more fair and equal solidarity and support. But there are some ways and possibilities to support us, uh, such as like maybe you can uh, make an individual or group's financial donation, or you can simply buy our crafts <laughs> or Maybe you want to donate in your equipments or tools uh, that we need. Uh, also, maybe organize a fundraising event like what we did uh, before. Um, and also, uh, maybe you can share again uh, what issues and updates that are that we give in our social media so we can spread more. Uh, information to other parts of the world so yeah just keep connecting with us uh, that that would be the best way to support us yeah I think that's a great note to end on um, and so with that I'd like to thank you both Itonk and Mila for joining me today to speak more about not only Needle and Bitch Collective, but the issues that concern all of us in the community and how we can create connections, strengthen our bonds and unite in order to fight against injustices in the world. So thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. That was Mila and Itong from Needle and Bitch Collective speaking about the priorities of the group, the workshops they run to empower members of their community to share their message with others, and the importance of solidarity across different communities and networks. To find out more about Needle and Bitch Collective, you can follow them on Instagram at, at Needle and Bitch. On today's show, we spoke with Morawa Johnson from the co-director of Youth Verdict about a Queensland court ruling that the Clive Palmer-owned Galley Basin Coal Project should not go ahead because of its contribution to climate change. We then spoke with Nawi Jimenez uh, from 
the Victorian Socialists about the race and class in the recent elections. We then revisited uh, an interview with Fleur Taylor from the NTEU at Victoria University about the situation for staff there. And lastly, we just heard an interview with Mila and Itong from Needle and Bitch, an anarcho-feminist collective based in Indonesia. And that was our show for today. Join us again next Tuesday and as always, keep it locked to 3CR. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.